Well, this is called Why We Stayed. If you're here, stay. Well, welcome back to the Why We Stayed podcast. I'm so excited for this episode today because the person who I'm interviewing, I've known since he was probably, oh man, I don't know, 10, 8. Uh, he's much older than that now. He has graduated from college. He's getting ready for uh, his first job. That's probably going to be a better job than my last job uh, that I'll ever have in my life. But anyway, uh, so excited about uh, interviewing this young man who is more than just an athlete. He's more than just um, an Ivy League graduate, but he is an incredible, incredible uh, man who's worth following. I just want to welcome to the podcast, Calvary Rogers. Calvary, how are you? Good. How's everyone doing? Good. I'm good. I love how you answered your own question. That was amazing. Um, I uh, Listen, tell tell the folks a little bit about, uh, maybe for those that, that are listening right now that don't know who you are, they don't know your story, they don't know where you're from, just give us a quick rundown of who is Calvary Rogers and where are you from? Yeah, so I'm from the uh, incredible city of Rochester, New York, 585, uh, always will be repping. Um, so I used to run track, um, but I had a very successful career. Um, I think an eight-time sectional champion back in high school, um, went on to run in college at the University of Pennsylvania, um, an Ivy League school down in Philadelphia, um, had a lot of success there as well, um, a six-time Ivy League champion in the 200-meter dash, um, two-time school record holder, and academic All-American, so it was an amazing time um, playing sports and just glorying, glorifying God through that uh, lens of life. Um, but outside of that, I did a lot of work, too, with um, social justice um, and um, things like that on campus, a, a bunch of different boards and uh, councils for diversity and things like that, um, which really landed me in a good spot for what I wanted to do in life. Uh, I realized that I love law and I love technology, so I kind of tried to combine the two. And this summer, uh, just a few months or a few weeks actually now, I'll be moving to California to work at Google and their legal department on this team called Legal Investigations. Um, and so basically the premise of this team is, um, you know, there's a lot of crime that goes on in the world. And um, most of the time, that crime kind of involves a Google product, whether it be, you know, Gmail or, you know, location services with maps and whatever they might have done. Um, and so police officers and law enforcement or different government agencies will go to Google and say, hey, we know you have this kind of data for this individual. Can you help us out? Um, we decide whether or not to help them, if it's constitutional, things like that. So it's really dope. And um, yeah. Man, th there is so much there that I could dig into. Unfortunately, we only have probably about 20 minutes or so to talk. But w when you started this podcast, you just briefly kind of jumped over the fact you said blank time, sectional champ, this and that. I mean, you, you started highlighting things that are a massive deal. And maybe for those listening, um, and again, even just for me, at what point growing up when you started to run, maybe it was just playing tag with friends or it was playing kickball in the backyard or whatever it was. At what point did you realize, yo, like I'm fast. Like I'm not just averagely quick i'm like beating every single person in my neighborhood like at what point did you realize that you were fast yeah that's, <laughs> that's really funny so um i that when growing up i really didn't see myself as being like that fast um just like any other kind of kid from where i'm from we all i was just trying to be in the nba so like that was my goal i was never really focused on speed or anything like that um but um at aquinas in middle school there was actually one day um Basketball season was over, and all my friends were playing, you know, different spring sports like lacrosse and baseball. Um, but those were never really my thing. And so the only thing that was really open was track. And I had a few friends that were doing that that were, I was really cool with. So they were like, why don't you just join the track team? So I was like, okay, cool. So I'm like 12, and um, it's actually around the time I met you. 
Um, and um, we had, uh, you know, the first practice, they try to weed everybody out, you know, make sure the people that aren't, aren't fast, you know, don't come back to practice because it's so hard and everything. And um, I ran this workout. I remember I ran a lap and some, I don't know what the time was or anything like that. I was only 12, but the coach started freaking out and was like, whoa, like this kid is crazy. Like he's only 12. He needs to be running varsity, even though he's like in the seventh grade, this, that, and the other thing. And I guess seeing someone uh, see that much potential in me was when mm. I kind of started believing in myself a lot more and pursued the sport. And it's been history ever since. So I guess that was the moment. That's incredible, man. I think for someone that's always been slow, um, <laughs> that is so incredible to hear. In fact, I, I just want to use this opportunity to share a story. I, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed to share it, but it's it, it's kind of a confession, but it's also just a story for everyone. Um, I will never forget when I was in middle school and we had to run the mile and we had eight popsicle sticks that represented the eight laps that you needed to take in the mile. <laughs> And as I was running, uh, I was at the, I think it was the second to last mile, and I decided, well, why don't I just drop two popsicle sticks because then I can, you know, then I can run one less lap. Mm -hmm. And I still finished with a seven and a half minute mile, and I ran one entire lap less uh, <laughs> than every single person in the class. So anyway, uh, I am not just slow; I am, I am beyond slow. But uh, Cal, one of the things too that's crazy, man, is for those that don't know. You are one of the fastest people ever, not just at UPenn, but to be in the Ivy League. What what has that experience been like for you? And again, I know there's all sorts of different, you know, track and field meets and and all sorts of different uh, kind of uh, races kind of within it. But what would you describe that experience being like? Yeah, being the being on like the Ivy League record books was something that I never thought would ever be a thing. Um, when I first came into Penn. Um, Honestly, I found the school an accident. Um, what happened was Harvard had called my mom. And since Harvard had called, we started looking at all these different other Ivy League schools and knew that was the kind of bar we would set for college. And um, when I got into Penn, um, I was just so, just getting in and being there was just a dream in itself that my expectations for myself were very low in terms of what I wanted to do. And the way God multiplied that it still has really blown my mind to this day looking back on everything. Um, so this year, um, we went to Texas Tech and I had run a 200 and um, looked at the time and turned out to be the second fastest time that I really had ever seen um, in the race. And it was honestly a very euphoric feeling at first. And then I realized that's kind of where God had placed me to be and what he had destined me to do. Um, so it's definitely an amazing, amazing and amazing and amazing feeling. Um, also, just to be in the company of people in the Ivy League, just outside of sports as well, is something that was, you know, an amazing privilege. And I kind of want to multiply you know, all the success I had in track, you know, to be able to do the things that I want to do outside of track as well and be a multifaceted individual, uh, which is why I started pursuing a lot of things like uh, computer science and, you know, those kind of fields. So it was definitely um, an experience that then it also just, um, uh, just it really just pushed me to be, you know, a better person and a better set higher expectations for myself, you know, to really set hard hitting goals that you know, I knew I was capable of, so. I love hearing that because, again, for those, you know, for somebody listening that maybe is an athlete and they are pursuing athletics, it sounds like you actually pursuing other things actually allowed you to be a better athlete doing that. And and maybe one of my questions for, for you is for maybe a young person listening that, now, maybe they're still in high school and, the, and they are pursuing uh, athletics and they're trying to get a scholarship somewhere. Or maybe they are a college athlete right now. What advice might you have for someone who, um, you know, wants to continue to pursue a Christian life, wants to continue to pursue uh, a righteous, well-rounded life, 
but yet they are an athlete. They do get some of the accolades that maybe come with that. What advice might you give to someone like that? Yeah, I heard a line the other day that kind of summarizes, you know, my entire experience at Penn and just what I want my life to be going forward. And the line is that your palace is your platform. Um, so whenever you reach success in life, whether it be in your sport or, you know, you're striving for something, always recognize that um, it's really just a platform for you to really do what God has you to do outside your sport as well. Um, when I look up and I look at my favorite athletes, you know, whether it be LeBron James or Steph Curry or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I, I really love these guys, not just because of what they do on the court, but mainly because of what they do outside of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example is LeBron James, you know, building a promise school, um, a school back in his hometown just to educate inner city kids that don't have the resources, you know, to be great and to get to where he got without his sport. And, you know, recognizing that privilege that you have as an athlete, you know, where people listen to you because of your accomplishments, you know, can really be used as leverage to, you know, carry out the message of God and the message of Christ. And that's something that you should really be pushing for. Um, so my advice to any athlete coming up now would definitely be to um, utilize like who you are and, and what you really want to do in life outside of the sport. Um, utilize the sports, you know, to ma- to maximize that and manifest that and make your dreams come true. That's so great, man, because I think so often there's a lot of athletes, whether they're in high school or college or wherever they are, where they actually, the, the sport ends up using them mm-hmm. a- as opposed to them using the sport and leveraging mm-hmm. the sport. And I think it's so encouraging for those listening that, you know, don't, don't let the sport use you and don't let the schools use you to draw in more people and to make more money or whatever that may be. But and try to leverage the sport so that you can continue to to speak to that platform. And yeah, and, and just commenting on that, I mean, that's a definitely a really big theme for everyone, anyone that's trying to go to the NCAA, um, is that a lot of times the sport will try to, like Mike was saying, will try to leverage you, mm-hmm. and you should always be leveraging the sport. You're the athlete, you know, you're the you're the person that's you know turning the lights on and that's you know making the magic happen, whether it's on the track or the court or the field. Yeah. Um, so make sure you know your value and you know your worth and you know that you're, you know, more than an athlete at all times. Um, when, whatever school you go to, if you're in the NCAA, what you have the opportunity to do is not just be an athlete, but to be a student athlete. And to make sure that after whatever four years or whatever uh, athletic career you have, maybe it is just in college or beyond college, that you've built up enough resources to really sustain yourself and make, you know, all of your outside ventures and dreams come true as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. It's very good, man. And again, for those listening, please listen to Calvary's experience on this. I am just trying to add value to the conversation. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, next, the next part that I really wanted to get into, Cal, was... You know, not soon after attending UPenn, obviously you have all these dreams about what Ivy League would be, right? As you're an 18-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid getting ready for college, you know, you see the pristine websites and the Facebook pages and, and you get all the nice brochures in the mail and you're like, you know, you're rocking your sweatshirt in high school, like, I'm going to Penn, this is going to be amazing. You have your signing day, which I was at, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff leading up to it is really exciting. But then your expectation maybe didn't match your experience because you started experiencing, uh, and not just you, but the campus, the school, our region, our world started experiencing severe injustice and racism. Can you speak to some of those things that you experienced there? Uh, yeah, so I guess not not so much a foreign theme to you know predominantly white institutions, but um, my sophomore year, um, unfortunately, um, this is after the election. You know, we were all going through a hard time after Trump got elected, the first thing. But two days after that had happened, um, a student that had been admitted to Penn but didn't um, actually end up going, he went to Oklahoma, 
had utilized, um, when you get into a college, usually they add all the class to the Facebook group. And what he had done after the election was went on, you know, the UPenn Class of 2020 Facebook group or 2018, 20, yeah, Class of 2020 Facebook group. And he had um, added any black person he saw on this Facebook list um, of that class or just the vast majority of them to a group me and was, you know, hurling racial slurs and saying, we're going to do this to you at this time. And Trump is doing this and this racist, this just a lot of racist um, graphic things that I won't share explicitly. But um, it really hurt a lot of people. And um, at the time, I was co-chair of this group called Emoja, um, which pretty much was a student government organization um, that kind of oversaw all black student life on campus from an administrative level and um, kind of worked to be a bridge between administration and students. Mm. And um, through that, um, like I was saying, um, even though I went to Penford Track and that's kind of what got me in, I really wanted to make sure I was, I've always had a heart for social justice and that's always kind of been you know, what God has placed me at uh, my entire life. And I made sure that that was, you know, what I committed to. So I called my coach and said, you know, this had happened and we're not, I'm not coming to practice. And he completely understood. And um, we worked through the situation very well. We um, actually had to talk to the FBI. We had to work with uh, campus law enforcement because people were scared to go to class. Mm. I mean, of course, because at the time we didn't know that the student was in Oklahoma. Um um, just a lot of different things, working through free speech and actually the group me app itself and making sure that the company knew what was going on and could shut down this person's account, you know, mm. the IP address tracking and then planning a community town hall with the entire school and the president of the school and all this stuff. It was very stressful, but um, what I learned was that even though what I, what I was expecting was to feel like I belong all the time and, you know, that I wouldn't have to deal with things like that at that school, um, I learned that there's always going to be bumps in the road and there's always going to think, be, be things that test you and make you, you know, challenge your own worth and if you really belong, you know, and if you really got in, you know, on your own merit. And, you know, people will test that and say, you know, you only got in because of affirmative action or just because you're here, you know, we're not going to acknowledge you in these classes and things like that. Um, so it's definitely important. What I learned is to always, you know, establish your worth first and whenever something challenges that, you'll never really waver. Mm. Um, but even beyond that... Um, I low-key kind of got my job from this experience. Um, mm -hmm. After this entire thing happened, um, the worst part about that entire day was finding out and hearing from so many different alumni, um, black alumni from Penn calling in to see if we were okay. Mm -hmm. And we, I would say yes, they would explain to me something that had happened to them in college, a very similar instance of whether it be, um, there's one kid with fraternity having a blow-up doll saying Merry Christmas from the frat and Beyonce, and the blow-up doll was a monkey. Mm. Um, there was another incident of a frat um, wearing KKK hoods to a party, and that was a whole thing. And this is just like throughout the years. Um, and the list goes on and on and on and on since Penn was founded and started accepting black students. And I got really frustrated because um, it would have been a lot easier to get through that day if I had just known what people had done before me. Yeah. And... Um, an idea that I had was to start a website or this kind of database that kind of archived all of Penn's black history and, you know, one central resource so that people could, you know, log in and say, okay, this is what this person did in 1970, yeah. this is their email, or this is what Calvary went through in 2019, and it could be 2030. And they can reach out and have a network of people to, you know, deal with these things in an easier way or have them deal with them since they've already went through those kind of tra trails. So mm. um, it ended up being really successful. And um, there's this thing on Black History Month that Google had called Pay It Forward. Uh, which is when they were looking for, you know, different Black History Month, you know, students, projects um, that they could kind of help out, engineer. And I didn't know how to code at the time or anything like that. And I had just applied off a whim because my one of my mentors had just told me to apply. And I was like, OK, I mean, I guess I don't mm -hmm. think I'm going to get through because it's Google. Yeah. But um, 
I ended up getting a call back and they were like, we think your idea is so cool. Like, we would love to, like, uh, talk to you at our office and this, that, and the other thing. And long story short, I work there now. So the way that God just turned that entire situation mm-hmm. into good has just completely blown my mind. Well, Cal, I think I think it's it's obvious for those maybe listening that you you were able to really summarize, which I'm sure was a significantly more difficult experience. You were obviously just able to summarize it without the anger and the frustration. You were really able to summarize it in a way that, again, put that positive spin and that positive light on it. But I am curious, maybe for those that are listening, how, how did you take something that was so evil and angry and um, racist, and how did you actually take that and say, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to go after this person or these groups of people and attack, but I'm going to make change. I'm going to make a difference. How did you process that? And again, be honest with us, right? Maybe maybe you didn't process it right away like that. Maybe it was, yo, where's this guy and we're going to go take care of it or whatever. But just share with us, what was that processing like? Maybe for someone listening today that has experienced very similar things and they can't get past the anger and the frustration, what advice might you give? Yeah, I think um, I'm a kind of a, a believer that I, I I feel like sometimes the way I deal with things shouldn't be the way everyone deals with things, especially when it comes to something as sensitive as racism or maybe be something else like sexism or whatever. Um, but... Yeah, I think the the reason why I could talk about it in such a positive light is that I gave my chances, myself the chance to be angry and to be sad and to grieve that entire day um, and to just surround myself with a community of people that felt the same exact way. Um, I think the biggest thing for me with dealing with racism is to not skip over emotion. Uh, one, and two, is to not entertain people that are going to make things worse and to mm. really prioritize yourself and your mental health and how you feel at that moment. Um, I can't imagine how much worse that day would have been if I was arguing with people on campus that didn't think it was that big of a deal or, you know, right. didn't. What I focused my energy on was, you know, making sure that I was okay, making sure my friends were okay, making sure as a community, as a whole, we were all okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's the first priority is making sure the person that's been afflicted is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do that first, it's easier now, you know, two years later to talk about it in a positive light. And when you look back on it, you see not... Not not just the incident, but more so the community that you had for yourself and mm. the way you protected yourself in that space. That's so good, man. And I, you know, again, coming from a white person's perspective, it's so difficult for me to understand, man, when something like that happens to my brothers, to my friends, to, you know, those that I'm closest with, maybe they're in the church, maybe they're not in the church, maybe they have faith, maybe they don't have faith. But if something evil happens, if something racist happens, that is not okay. As a white person, it's such a difficult thing for me to feel like where where do I find my place in that? Can I can I help? Can I listen? What can I do uh, to to help uh, in this scenario? And again, maybe for someone listening that is a white listener that has you know friends of all different races, what what might you say to them to say? Man, if you see something like this happen or um, if you're around a community where maybe this happens on a consistent basis, what are some maybe pointers that you might give uh, for us? Yeah, I I think my deal is um, don't be performative about your activism. Um, We're kind of getting into this kind of social media uh, stage of where it's almost in a sense cool to be like, you know, quote unquote woke and anti-racist and all this stuff. Um, because that's what gets the most likes and it's cool to share articles that you haven't read and things like that. Um, but what's hard is 
doing that when no one's looking um when you're at thanksgiving dinner and you, maybe your uncle says something that just doesn't really seem right and you know it's not right but that's your uncle do you say something or do you not or maybe you're at a bar and you're you know getting a drink with your friends and someone says something about a black person that walks by and you know it doesn't sound right do you say something or do you not um what to me matters the most is, is what are you in the space that we're not allowed in you know what i mean what are you saying what are you communicating what are you sticking up for because those are where your values really shine and i think that's the most convicting thing that i can really say that i would like to see change um a lot of times you know we look at this election data of black people voted this way and white people voted this way and white men voted this way and white women voted this way and we see how segregated our results on how we vote are just just that in itself and i think the reason why is because i can't have conversations with everybody about you know, what's going on because I'm black and they're not going to listen to me because I'm black and I seem biased and I seem this. But when it's you and you have a nephew or you're the cousin or you're the friend and you have that kind of perspective because you grew into that, they see that kind of growth and it will inspire them to, you know, maybe actually I need to reevaluate what I'm saying and maybe you're right. Or maybe you just don't need friends like that that are racist in your yeah. life. Are you willing to give that up, you know, for mm -hmm. what you believe in? And I think that's, you know, I think the journey starts there. It's very helpful, man. And I, again, I, I think maybe for those listening, I think because I've known you since you were a kid, right? I mean, I've seen the family dynamics that you've grown up with and I've seen, you know, both of your parents always continue to grow, grow you and your siblings up in faith, up in church. Mm -hmm. How is your faith? Again, this whole podcast, right, is why we stayed. Sometimes it takes more faith to stay than to go. And how would you say that your faith has helped ground you when it comes to things like racism? It comes to things like being a celebrated athlete. I mean, those are almost the most opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You've got one place where you're celebrated, you're lifted up. And again, if you're not humble, maybe could actually become a really uh, scary or difficult experience for you. And then right in the same hallway, you have racism and just, you know, again, an experience that just isn't fair, right? And so so share with us maybe how, how has faith been able to to grab you in a way that has grounded you in your faith journey in your life? Yeah, I mean, I talked a little bit about worth earlier, but um, honestly, going back to middle school, I don't know who had a sermon about this, but um, there was a really big moment in my life where I realized uh, the power of the sentence of finding your identity in Christ and what that means. Mm -hmm. And when you find your identity in Christ and you have that grounding and you have that definition that cannot change, that doesn't shift, you know, that doesn't change by this person says something to me today or I just won this race so it goes up, you know. Yeah. Sometimes we look at our identity and our self-worth like a, like a meter. You know, I could say I won this race today, so now I'm at a, you know, like a nine out of ten. And the next day, someone said something to me that I didn't like, that was a little racist, so now I'm around like a three. You know, that that kind of inconsistency in life I can't live with. I, I don't I don't have the time to afford to do good, that. Man. You know what I mean? But when you find your identity in Christ, that doesn't waver. That stays grounded. So no matter what happens, you're always at that ten. You're always at that, mm. you know, that high moment. Whether you're sad or happy, you know, your worth is your worth. And that's something that to me has really helped my faith grow, and it, and it's the reason why I have always stayed and will continue to stay. Well, Cal, it's been so good to chat with you, man. I, I can't tell you how incredible it's been to have a front row seat uh, at your life uh, since you were 10 years old or 12 years old, whatever that was. And just to see the way that your family's raised, raised you, but also just to see the decisions that you've owned as your own. Maybe for those that have grown up in faith but decided to leave faith, you know, I just wanna encourage you listening that it's never too late uh, to re-engage it again. 
And maybe there's someone listening that something difficult, extremely difficult and damaging and damning has happened in your life. And it's caused you to say, if God is good, there's no way that this could happen. And you've abandoned faith altogether. And man, my prayer is that we would we would take a look at Calvary's story and say, whether the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, your identity hasn't changed. And that only comes because of your trust and your faith in Christ. And so Cal, thanks so much, man, for, for being here. And for those listening, man, thanks for tuning in. I encourage you to go check out Calvary, not just his story, but his continued uh, life of faith. Man, give him a follow on Instagram. He's got uh, all sorts of creative uh, expressions and, and, and all sorts of things on the horizon. I'm so excited uh, for what San Francisco is going to bring. And yeah. uh, thanks for hanging. Thank you.